2: Welcome back to Pod Save the World, the show where I try to bring you behind the scenes into the White House foreign policy decision-making process by interviewing some of the people I worked with along the way. Today's a very special episode for me. Uh, I interview a guy named Ben Rhodes, who's Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. He was also my office mate. And he was, you know, probably one of the closest advisors on foreign policy for President Obama, period, for eight years. It is a fascinating conversation. Ben led the talks with Cuba, about reestablishing diplomatic relations. He was in all the big meetings and all the big decisions along the way. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Welcome to Pod Save the World. My guest today is Ben Rhodes. I believe I should start with the disclosure that I worked for Ben. We actually shared an office, and I sat like 10 feet away from him, so he heard me yell at reporters, generally be a uh, pain in the ass to people. And so this interview might sound a little bit more like a couple guys telling old war stories who who had cool jobs one day. But Ben was the Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications at the White House uh, and a speechwriter for President Obama. So thank you, Ben, for being here.
3: Good to be here. My first post-White House media appearance. This Tommy. is huge. Yeah.
2: This is huge for me. How are you doing without the PDB every day? Are, are, you, are you content with the Trump version of Twitter and uh, Fox & Friends? Uh,
3: it's a good question. Uh You know, I think... Having been there for eight years, on the one hand, what the PDB does is it essentially aggregates the worst things that are happening in the world for you, <laughs> um, including the things that are kind of coming down the pike that you know, might not be in the newspaper today, but are going to be in a week or two. So you have a bit of a heads up on things. But uh, the other side of it is it's not that surprising. You know, most of the things that you would get in the PDB or in your intel, frankly, if you carefully read the newspaper and follow events, yeah, yes, you might not have certain specific intelligence, but in terms of what's going on in the world, you can have a pretty good sense.
2: Right, right. You had a pretty extraordinary career arc over the last decade. You spent five years working at the Wilson Center for former Congressman Lee Hamilton on projects like the Iraq Study Group, the 9-11 Commission Report, and then you joined the campaign as a speechwriter. How did you make that leap from foreign policy guy to foreign policy writer?
3: Well, you know, the thing is— um, I never had a real mapped out career plan, which uh, worked to my advantage uh, because the people I know who had kind of a rigid vision of here's how I get from X to Y to Z tended to box themselves in and not pursue opportunities. After doing the 9-11 Commission with Hamilton and then the Iraq Study Group, uh, what I basically decided is, you know, the 9-11 Commission and the Iraq Study Group basically did as much as you could do in kind of a nonpartisan basis. But uh, I saw that you can only make a difference around the edges and that you actually have to get into politics and you have to get into the the fight if you want to change direction on foreign policy. So I was adamant that I wanted to get into that 2008 cycle. And Obama was the one guy I wanted to work for. So I basically, you know, I knew Dennis McDonough. I knew Mark Lippert, who was the Senate foreign policy guy at the time. And I offered to just work for free. And so did a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, you get to know people that way. And when a speech writing job opened up on the campaign uh, in the spring, uh, you know, I jumped on it.
2: Right. So the lesson to all young people who want to work in politics, do a campaign.
3: Yeah. The lesson is like, you know, if you want to work in the White House, don't have a plan to work in the White House. Um, You know, have a plan to follow people that you're interested in uh, and get on a campaign or get in a congressional office. I mean, people ask me about grad school. I'm like, You know, not many people go from the Masters in International Relations to uh, the White House. They go from a congressional office or a campaign to the White House.
2: Right. So you do a couple years as a speechwriter, and then you make this transition to Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications. Now, that's a big promotion in any situation, but you also happen to be following Dennis McDonough, who you just mentioned, who is like one of the closest aides to Obama, ended up becoming the chief of staff to the president uh, in later years. I'm wondering, what was that learning curve like for you in those early days?
3: Well, you know, in a strange way on the campaign, I ended up doing a job that wasn't that dissimilar from what the deputy national security advisor job was because I was a speechwriter. So I wrote all the foreign policy speeches. But, you know, out in Chicago, a campaign is a startup. And if people figure out that you know something, they go to you. So I had to do a little bit of press. I had to do debate prep. I had to help write policy papers and fact sheets. So I I had done a bit of the different things that I was going to have to do in the deputy job, when I got it in September of 09, you know, I think the steepest curve for me is I think people don't realize you're not just, you know, and you know this, you're not just working in the White House. Uh, you're suddenly responsible for coordinating what the State Department is saying, what the Pentagon is saying, what the intelligence community is saying. So for me, the steepest learning curve was suddenly working with this apparatus of literally thousands of people in the U.S. government from embassies to combatant commands to war zones. Right. And you're talking to all those people almost every day. And, you know, you're having to formulate how the U.S. government is presenting itself. And so it's not just about the president, what he says, or even what the press secretary says. It's about what all of the U.S. government is saying. Right.
2: So I think one interesting thing you did early on that I think married the speech writing and, and your future job at Deputy National Security Advisor was you helped President Obama write the Cairo speech, which was a pretty extraordinary effort to reach out to the Muslim world after the Iraq war essentially destroyed opinion of the U.S. abroad. You know, obviously that speech, eight years of Obama, didn't solve all our problems in that region. Uh, far from it. But I'm wondering what you think looking back of that effort, how well we did given what was possible. And I think how much damage you think Trump has done in this first few weeks with this Muslim band, which you, know, you have ISIS openly celebrating.
3: Well, you know, there are a couple of things. I mean, first of all, the Cairo speech— from a policy perspective, kind of laid out you know here's where we'd like to get on a whole set of issues and if you look at it as a report card, um, there's some things that we talked about that we did that are really important, like an Iranian nuclear deal, right. uh, avoiding a war with Iran, drawing down significantly our true presence in Iraq and Afghanistan the some things that we didn't do, like arab Israeli peace um, that doesn't mean it wasn't worth doing though uh, you know I, I always get a little annoyed at the notion that you shouldn't set ambitious goals unless you're going to meet all of them. You know, Obama was able to get things done as president because he set a whole bunch of ambitious goals. He didn't accomplish them all. But because he had that ambition, he did some pretty extraordinary things around the world. But the second part of that speech is, look, while it didn't resolve every grievance or eliminate many of the tensions that are roiling the Arab and Muslim world. It provided a basis for for dialogue. And at a minimum, it averted a narrative of a war between the United States and Islam that is precisely what terrorist groups want. And that gave us space to work with other countries who are Muslim-majority countries. I think people need to realize, and this will get into the ban, you know, counterterrorism work doesn't it just doesn't work if it's only us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to break up a terrorist cell in Southeast Asia, you have to work with Malaysia and Indonesia. Um, if you want to rescue a hostage in Yemen, uh, you need the permission of the Yemeni government to do a, a counterterrorism raid. Um, and we did have that cooperation from Muslim-majority nations throughout our presidency. Uh, and that doesn't mean there weren't huge threats from terrorism, but it means that we had a basis for getting things done. Now, you know, this is the problem with the the ban is that it's seven countries. That has an immediate impact on human beings. And, you know, like sometimes in politics, it's like, how is this being received? Mm-hmm. It was a bad rollout. You know, I could care less about the rollout. Yeah, uh, there are tens of thousands of people whose lives are upended by this. There are translators who work with uh, our military in Iraq and Afgan- Afghanistan who cannot get into the country and whose lives may be at risk. There are people... Who are students? Or they're people who uh, are on other exchanges. Who suddenly their lives are upended. They can't be in touch with their families. They can't travel here and back. Uh, and so they're having to, you know, rethink their entire lives. Um, that's the first point. The second point, though, is that the negative impression that this creates across the entire Muslim world is profound. Not just in these seven countries. Um, and this is really important. Everybody, you know, yes, there are only seven countries. But every country in the world is looking at this and making judgments about what this president, this administration thinks about Muslims. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're in Malaysia or Indonesia or Egypt or any one of the countries that's not on the list, uh, you're still looking at this and making a judgment that um, this seems hostile and targeted towards Muslims. And that's going to make it harder for countries to work with us. And beyond that, uh, the last thing I'd I just say is that we said this for years, that the reason we didn't have an ideological frame around our counterterrorism efforts, we didn't say we were at war with radical Islam, is because that's exactly what the terrorists want. And we know this. I mean, it's not – it's not a theory. It's based on what they say and how they try to recruit and what and
2: Bin Laden wanted to change the name of Al Qaeda because precisely because we had reframed. That's the right.
3: You know, the, this is one of the more satisfying things uh, that uh, you know. I, I do think uh, the president should get President Obama should get credit for the Cairo speech and other efforts. We when we went into Abbottabad and got the media out of a, uh, Bin Laden's compound, uh, we ended up declassifying this. He was communicating with uh, other al-Qaeda members about the fact that al-Qaeda didn't work anymore as a brand because we had so narrowed the focus of the war to not the U.S. versus Islam but the U.S. versus a terrorist organization, al-Qaeda, that also killed Muslims that he felt that they needed a brand that brought in a religious identity, Mm -hmm. frankly foreshadowing what ISIS would Mm -hmm. end up doing, which is branding themselves – Um, as an Islamic organization. And again, uh, we've already seen uh, reports that ISIL is celebrating this ban, that they are referring to it as the blessed ban, because this now allows them as awful and nihilistic and uh, completely abhorrent as they are. um, So I'm not saying that they're right, they're completely wrong. um, But they will go in their recruitment efforts and say, well, look, the United States really is at war with Islam. They're targeting, uh, they're they're saying they're at war with radical Islam. They're targeting Muslim countries for, you know, exclusion from the United States. And and that's going to make the job of our counterterrorism professionals harder.
2: You mentioned the need to work with partners. And I think, you know, it's a really interesting point, right? Because there are some countries that are willing and able to help us and have strong intelligence services, militaries, and there are some partners that are lacking capacity. And we have to do a lot of things ourselves in those regions. And it brings to mind Yemen, uh, which is uh, a hotbed for AQAP, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, from which has emanated some of the most dangerous attacks during President Obama's time in the White House. And I read you know, earlier that they are actually going to tell the United States that we can no longer conduct unilateral missions in Yemen. And I'm wondering what you think the consequences of that decision might be. And you know, reading about this Yemen operation that Trump approved apparently over dinner with Ivanka and Jared Kushner and not in the White House situation room, like leafing through a concept of operation that detailed the plan. I'm wondering, you know, is that normal? Uh, <laughs> is that dangerous? I mean, what, what's your take on this, having probably worked on this issue?
3: Well, look, you know, w- when when we would have a counterterrorism operation like that, that is a ground operation, a risky operation, a special forces operation – That was always put through a very rigorous process. You would have meetings at different levels of the government to review the plan. So the people who are at the deputy level, the deputy secretary of defense and state and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, they all review the plan. Then it goes up to the principal's level, the cabinet level, and the national security advisor and the secretary of defense and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, they all review it. And then it goes to the president for, for his review and ultimate approval. And what you do in that process is you identify the vulnerabilities in the plan, uh, and you think through whether or not it's worth doing uh, or not. So no, President Obama never would have made that type of decision, yeah. you know, over dinner. Um, he would have made it around the table in the Situation Room or in the Oval Office with a group of the right advisors to include, you know, military, intelligence, and counterterrorism advisors. And look, uh, this points to the risk because we put a lot of time and effort into trying to minimize civilian casualties in our counterterrorism operations. Part of that is a moral obligation. And part of that also is if you are engaged in operations in another country that are taking the lives of civilians, ultimately that government is going to say, you can't do that in here anymore because it's creating too much problems for us. Uh, and so from what I've read about this raid, tragically, we lost a Navy SEAL um, and a, a significant number of civilians died for this type of operation. And now we see a potential consequence, which is if the Yemeni government is saying you can no longer do these types of raids here, well, what is that going to mean the next time we need to rescue a hostage or we need to go after a high-value al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula figure um, who we might be able to have an opportunity to detain? You know, this is why cooperation is not like an end in itself because we all want to feel like we're all getting along. It's, It's very practical. You know, if we If we don't get buy-in from other countries, we can't get things done around the world. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, especially in a place like Yemen. It's unbelievably dangerous. More nerdy foreign policy coming up on Pod Save the World.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: For the love of home.
2: Switching gears a little bit. During your time at the White House, your portfolio grew even beyond communications and speech writing. And you became an emissary for the president to deliver messages directly. And, and I think one of the most fascinating examples, you were the one of the two members of the administration who were tapped to lead um, the secret negotiations to restore diplomatic relations with Cuba. And I'm wondering if you could tell us, you know, you held these talks in secret in Canada of all places. i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. How many people in the world knew about these socks when you started and what kind of lies did you have to tell Anne and everybody else, as Ben's wife, um, when you disappeared to Canada and came back smelling like Cuban cigars and rum?
3: <laughs> well, actually, on the last point, what used to drive me crazy is the Cubans are very gregarious. Uh, <laughs> and so they would always give us cigars and rum as gifts, but we could never accept them because, like, you know – for a couple reasons. One, I think it exceeded the legal limit of cigars I could bring <laughs> in the country. But two, which, by the way, we've changed. Now you can bring as many Cuban <laughs> cigars as you want. Thanks, um, Obama. Yeah. Thanks, Obama. But also because like, you know, how it would kind of blow my cover story if I'd <laughs> shown up with boxes of Cuban cigars and rum. So I'd always give the Canadians uh, these gifts, which, you know, they, they deserve for hosting us. Um, it was very strange because, you know, the, we did a lot of meetings, I think, before the announcement, we did something like 12 or 15 meetings. Um, and we subsequently had many more after the announcement. But the first couple, I think I tried to invent some story, like I was out for this reason or doing something. And then they were so frequent that I just started, like, I just wouldn't show up to work. You know? <laughs> and I wouldn't tell anybody why. Uh, and people like didn't really ask. But uh, but what was strange, uh, you know, the, the, the strangest part about it is, there's an expectation in your job that you're going to be responsive, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'd go into these eight-hour sessions, you know, and we'd take a break after three hours, and I'd have, like, 300 emails, including, (laughs) like, reporters. and
2: Ben Rhodes never emails me back. Yeah, so (laughs) I,
3: well, uh, thankfully, I already had a reputation for not emailing some people back. But, um, so I tried to kind of respond enough so it looked like I wasn't off the grid. um, Because I didn't want to say I was out of the country, because they'd be like, well, where are you, right? So, um, you know, I just try to do enough to... Uh, make it appear like I wasn't totally um, off the grid in a way that would raise suspicions. Um, I frankly had this moment of dread every time I walked through Dulles Airport that I was going to run into somebody. Um, uh, Miraculously, the the secret held. And I got to say, the Canadians were really good about this because they knew it needed to be secret. I mean, at the beginning in the White House, there were probably less than 10 people who knew about this Uh and nobody outside of the White House knew about it. And... Unless our intelligence community probably knew about it because they have their own ways of knowing things but um <laughs> the uh and then like the Canadians kept it really tight, and when we would get there, they would kind of meet us uh, at the gate, some amiable Canadian would kind of hustle us through immigration or whatever we had to pass through, and then kind of put us in a car and drive us <laughs> about an hour outside of Ottawa to this facility they had, and you know you'd have these meetings and They'd be sandwiches at lunch, and and then you'd not be able to take your Cuban cigars and rum, and you'd go back and get on the plane.
2: Were those were those conversations contentious? Were these are these people going to be your friends for life? Like, what's the vibe in the room?
3: The vibe in the room at the beginning was really I don't want to say contentious, but it was what you'd think, which is they wanted to debate like the Bay of Pigs invasion. Oh God, you know, yeah. um, I mean, I spent you know the first I think I described the first meeting as an eight hour throat clearing exercise mm-hmm. where they would. You know, every crime, in their view, that the United States had committed, you know, from the Bay of Pigs to assassination efforts on Fidel Castro to Miami-backed groups that it's sought the to— the greatest hits album. Know, yeah, it was just the a, a greatest hits album of Cuban grievances. And, and instead of kind of, like, debating every point, I'd just be like, guys—I mean, this is where, you know, uh, my youth was helpful because I'd just mm-hmm. be like, guys, I wasn't even born when that happened. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I'm here to talk about the future. Uh and, you know, President Obama wasn't even born when some right. of this stuff happened. Uh, and that kind of sunk in. And, and, and you know, after they had kind of gotten it off their chest the first two or three meetings, we kind of bore down on the things we were trying to solve and then realized actually we could be much more ambitious. You know, we were just trying to get Alan Gross out of prison mm-hmm. at first. But then we realized, well, we got an opening here. These people, you know, are actually ready to talk about the whole relationship. And so the the ambition grew over the course of the negotiations. And yeah, we did develop really good relationships with these guys. I mean, that doesn't mean I agree with them about everything, but that's the only way you're going to get anything done in mm-hmm. diplomacy.
2: Yeah. I've heard you talk about when you went to the Vatican, both with President Obama and I think unilaterally, uh, to brief them on these efforts. want you to tell us a little bit about that story.
3: Well, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, the Vatican has you know, long supported better relations between the U.S. and Cuba, and that only got more the case with Pope Francis because he was, you know, he's from Latin America, he's from Argentina, mm-hmm. so you know everybody in Latin America wants there to be better relations between the United States and Cuba, which is one of the reasons why to do it, frankly. Um, but when we went to the Vatican with President Obama in, uh, I think March of fourteen, you know, the Pope talked to him about Cuba more than any issue. Um, mm. And Obama kind of said to them, "Look, you know, we've got something going actually, um, which he had not yet said to any other leader. And it'd be great if you could be helpful." And we basically communicated to them that they, if they would offer that assistance formally, mm-hmm. that would be useful. You know, so we ended up getting a letter sent to Obama and Raúl Castro that was essentially the same letter that said, "We're ready to be helpful as it relates to efforts to resolve." prisoner issues, which to us is Alan Gross, and mm-hmm. the Cubans was a handful of people in prison in the Alan United Gross was a
2: USAID contractor been detained for four or five years at that point?
3: That's right. He, he was a USAID subcontractor who was working on kind of democracy programming, detained early in our administration. Um, and we knew we couldn't politically, I mean, humanitarian wise, we wanted him out mm-hmm. uh, for his sake. And politically, we, we weren't going to improve relations with Cuba while a guy like that was in prison. And al- also offering to be helpful on the broader relationship. When we went back to the Vatican in October of uh, 14, we had actually f- basically finalized a series of agreements that were then announced in December. So the Vatican was really surprised by it; Like they didn't know mm-hmm. like we were that far along. I think they thought they were hosting a meeting when in fact uh, – and they were and we were there for several hours – but. They instead were essentially receiving these commitments we've made, which, by the way, that was the role they played that was indispensable because you know, we can't trust each other. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, right. How, how could they trust that we were going to do what we said? How could we trust that they're going to do what they said? So if we deposited those commitments at the Vatican, they were essentially a guarantor. Nobody could go back on something that they told the pope. You right. know? <laughs> and the Vatican could have come out and said, well, wait a second. These guys told us they were going to do X and they didn't. And so that's why, they, you know, and only they could play that role because they have uh, a degree of respect and neutrality um, in both countries and around the world. Um, and so it was like really emotional because, you know, they were overwhelmed. I remember there was one Vatican official who was like in tears because uh, he li- lived and worked in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And it gave me an initial impression of, as to how big a deal this is going to be around the world. And the weird thing about it is, you know, I'm relatively anonymous. You know, I'm not John Kerry when I go someplace. So when I walked out of the Vatican, I'm just some guy walking down the street in Rome. You know, me and Ricardo went and got a nice, like, you know, dinner of, like, pasta and calamari and red wine and stuff. And we're like, shoot, we know this secret, (laughs) you know, that's going to really blow everybody's minds here. Uh, uh, So it was was this weird calm because the deal was done, but it wasn't public yet. And so you— you're carrying around this this piece of information that you know is going to kind of, mm-hmm. you know, send shockwaves out around the world.
2: Yeah, I think one of the proudest moments I had in my life of having worked for President Obama and one of the moments I missed working at the White House the most was when you guys went on that trip with the president to Cuba. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. I mean, it, it, is there a moment or, or an event that jumps out at you? Uh, was it as earth-shattering as it looked from TV? Hard-hitting questions, I know.
3: Yeah, no, <laughs> well, it, it was. I mean... Uh, You know, I'd been to Cuba by that point a few times. But uh, landing in Cuba on Air Force One, you know, first of all, what's strange about going to Cuba is it is like 90 miles from Florida. Like you fly over the Keys and then you're like in Cuba in like five minutes. So like the absurdity of of, of how removed we've been given how close we are sinks in. But then you think, you know, the Bay of Pigs invasion, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and then here's Air Force One landing. And and that moment, you know, was really powerful. And and also, frankly, you see the effect of the embargo, um, which I'm not proud of, which is like you fly over Miami and it's this gleaming city, and then you, you fly over these kind of dilapidated uh housing structures out by the airport. And and it you know, that sinks in. But then in terms of moments, you know, I, I think there were so many that were so everything I've never done anything, even in eight years in that job, where everything that happened was like the first time it had ever happened. And it was totally, so like Raul Castro took questions. Like he's never done that. That was incredible. Like they had a press conference. Like that was, that was uh, unbelievable. President United States standing in, you know, revolutionary square with like Che Guevara's face and bold on a building nearby. And the U S national anthem being played was incredible. When the president addressed the Cuban people, they broadcast it live. And so here he is talking about our values, our democracy. And you know, that's in every Cuban home and the audience we negotiated this very interesting audi- audience because there were Cuban-Americans there and Cuban-Americans who've opposed the mm-hmm. Castro government. And then there was Raul Castro and they were all in the same room together. That never happened before. So everything was new. But the the one anecdote that's kind of unusual that always stuck with me is there was a, it was an incredibly hard trip to organize. And you remember, Tommy, like- Can't the, even imagine. The, uh, a president trip is always a pain to organize because we send- we annoy the hell out of every country because yeah. we send, like, all these military aircraft and equipment right. and hundreds of people. So there are always fights. But with Cuba, there were, you know, 10 times as many fights because they're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, is, what is happening? Is this another Bay of Pigs? Like, uh, yeah. or are you guys, <laughs> like, uh, what's in that cargo plane, you right. know? And so our advanced staff had, like, a, a real hell of a time. And this guy, Duncan Teeter, who's, like, an awesome advanced guy, he was just going out of his mind and not sleeping. And he was furious and, like – All these fights. And he said then the day before we got there, they they built a stage for this event we did on entrepreneurship. And these two Cuban guys kind of finally finished building this dais with, like, the Cuban and American flags behind it and sat down to have a beer. And they all just sat down and they just all started crying. That's because they're just looking at these flags together. Yeah. And they're like, w- you know, wait a second. This is real, you know?
2: Yeah. You know what? Raise a beer for all the advanced staffers out there who did heroic the work heroes, for no credit and never oh, yeah. slept on the They made
3: trips. everybody else look good and, yeah. and never got credit.
2: They made all of us look yeah. good and saved our asses when we got lost and like...
3: Well, well I'm curious. Look, I'm curious about the Trump international trips. Uh, oh, my God. Because like, um, you know, look, some of it, the machinery government kicks in and mm-hmm. the State Department moves things around and... But, you know, actually, it takes a lot of work. And uh, I'd watch the first couple trips to see how those come off. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, seriously. Changing gears a tiny bit. Y- you and I sort of lived – you lived the full sea change of information access and awareness sort of just getting dumped out into the, into the public. But I'd start with WikiLeaks. I mean I was at the White House during WikiLeaks, and I will never forget – The first meeting you and I had with the New York Times, like someone emailed like someone who one of my bosses and it got kicked to you and me. And we went over and we sat down with Dean Baquet, who was the Washington Bureau chief and like the secretary of war suite in the EOB with like five of the scariest New York Times reporters who just only crushed you with reports when they called. And they laid out their binder of everything that was in there. And I remember walking out of that meeting and you and I just sort of stopped and looked at each other and laughed because we were like, we are so fucked. Yeah. How can we do So far beyond our it? ability to respond. Right. 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 And then, to so the Times is great credit. They worked with us on redactions, but then you flash forward to the last days of administration, the president uh, pardoned Chelsea Manning for, for leaking those documents, rightly, in my opinion. I'm wondering if you could talk about why he chose to pardon Manning. And if you think is overclassification a bigger problem when you're talking about a situation like WikiLeaks where it's secret-level cables? And I was going to ask you about Snowden later because obviously that's a different beast. Yeah. But I was wondering how you guys arrived well, at look,
3: that. Well, look, before I get to the, the pardon, I just want to get something off my chest about <laughs> WikiLeaks. Like – and you're right. Like was, the scope of the release of the cables was beyond our ability to comprehend. Like they've done some stuff in a rock before. find mm-hmm. you deal with that. This was all around the world, and it did put lies at risk. You know, we had – I remember meeting a guy in, in one of our embassies overseas who told me that he had been at our embassy in Canada. He used to meet with, you know, people come in our embassies, meet with us all the time. Mm-hmm. So this guy met with somebody who worked on kind of reservations in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, Native peoples. And he used to say, like, uh, you know, you should know these these are what's happening in the drug trade here. Oh, wow. Human trafficking. And this guy said that, you know, that was all in the cables because then they write a cable, send it back. Yep. And that after um, the WikiLeaks things, that guy had just disappeared. Okay. And I was like, well, what happened to him? He's like, I don't know. He's gone. Like, I, you know, I don't no know if harm came to him or if he just got scared and moved somewhere. Point being is just one small example. of. Uh, so the one thing I take issue with at the Times, so we had these debates with Dean, who's a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. But I think in retrospect, even though they did the redactions, the Times and Der Spiegel and the Guardian all published all those WikiLeaks. It legitimized WikiLeaks. Oh, absolutely. Um, just the fact that they were in a partnership with the New York Times kind of bestowed on them like a almost a journalistic credibility mm-hmm. that they don't deserve. No. And now we see that they're basically just a front for the FSB, and, or for Russian intelligence generally. And and so I think that that that's something that news organizations need to wrestle with because you know yes they're always going to side with transparency but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the motive
2: matters. I, uh, I, I agree. This bothers me too because there there are some reporters who are just agnostic about the source of information. A document is yeah. a document, but clearly this election showed that there was an agenda yeah. and there was a political motive behind this.
3: Yeah, yeah, and 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 it was clear. Even if it wasn't clear back then that WikiLeaks is working for the Russians. It was clear that their motive was to delegitimize the United States around the world. Mm-hmm. It wasn't transparency, it really, because they weren't targeting anybody else except us. Right now, on on Chelsea Manning, look, I I had misgivings. But the reason why I think that you know, the president did it and, again, I think is appropriate to do is not – you have to look at what he did. He did not pardon her. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did not absolve the crime. He did not in the explanation say, well, this is because she was just right. trying to do something for transparency. It wasn't a, uh, an absolving of right, her motives. Right, commutation. It was just the conditions, the, the nature of the sentence and the conditions she mm-hmm. was in were untenable. It was a mercy an act of mercy uh, that essentially, you know, here's somebody who got a much longer sentence, sentence than somebody usually does for that kind of thing, who was being held in really extreme circumstances given who she is. And I think he just felt like, you know, she's paid for this. She's expressed remorse. You know, she served time. And there's like a cruelty to having her serve out her entire sentence. And that, yeah. you know, that's, uh, I think, what ultimately informed him. Yeah. Not any positive view of her or wikileaks sure
2: sure you're listening to pod save the world stick around there's more great show coming your way
1: whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style and you'll find the best mattress for you at ashley the new temper adapt collection at ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body conforming technology making every sleep tailored to be your best The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
2: But from the outside, that looked a hundred times worse. And just to help people understand the nature of how these are different, the WikiLeaks cables were were State Department cables, they were secret level, they were information about, you know, reports back classified, yes, but less sensitive. We Snowden released top secret, some like programs I wasn't read into about how we collect information on adversaries. Some of the most sensitive sources and methods we have, period, in the world that Make it harder for us to collect information probably today on Iran's nuclear program or on the Russians or on name your 31 flavors of bad actors. So I'm wondering what the hell was that like? How did you guys deal with
3: that? Yeah, look, and that was even worse. And and the funny thing is, like, I would sometimes meet with um, journalists, you know, opinion journalists. So I'm, you know, people who work for magazines and stuff who are liberals and. And they'd kind of be like, come on, you got to sympathize with Snowden, you know, because they just figure like you know, temperamentally you're mm-hmm. liberal. and you know. yeah, yeah. But no, like because first of all, number one, if the guy had gone to the mall and held a press conference and faced the consequence, I would have a ton of respect for him. Mm-hmm. Daniel Ellsberg did that. Yep. Daniel Ellsberg didn't go to Russia. Right. Number two, he could have put out the information in a different way. Yeah. If he wanted to convey the scope of our metadata collection, there are ways to do that without putting out the blueprints. Um, And this is why, like, I think his motives are not pure. I've never believed for a second that that guy was just a transparency activist or a privacy activist or – because why put out all the blueprints of how we do this? Mm -hmm. And this is what – you know, he didn't just put out the fact of metadata collection. Literally, it showed other countries, including hostile ones, like the blueprints for how the U.S. gathers intelligence. And, you know, that – that has enormous ramifications that you know I can't even begin to uh, fully capture because you know I'm not a intelligence professional, and I, I think it it just it should not have been kind of put in the in my view in the bucket that it was, which is this guy's a whistleblower, because mm-hmm. um, again, like a whistleblower doesn't conspicuously <laughs> pass through China to Russia, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, like there's, you know, and reporters are, I say, well, you know, are you telling me that, you know, that he was working for the Russians or what have you? I'm like, I'm not. I'm telling you what I see, which Mm -hmm. is this guy went to China and Russia, the two most adversarial intelligence competitors of the United States. He could have gone to, you know, some very liberal European country that probably Mm -hmm. would have taken him in. Right. Like he um, or he could have faced the music here. The choice of those destinations speaks volumes to me. Yeah, you know,
2: and what's always bothered me about Snowden is like I think you need to compartmentalize these things. Like in hindsight, President Obama looked at some of the releases that were made about domestic intelligence collection on Americans and made some reforms. And that basket of issues, maybe there was some good that came of it. There was a whole other set of documents that had absolutely nothing to do with collection on Americans and they were frequently timed to be released to create maximum tension with a country like Brazil or Germany or other places and important partners and allies. And I just wondered, why take so much and just dump it to some.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, this is another interesting question that you raised, right, which is why Germany? They deliberately timed their releases and put them out in a way to disrupt U.S. relations with other countries. Right. That is not about whistleblowing either. That's about disrupting U.S. foreign policy. By the way, we see the same thing with what WikiLeaks is doing in Germany now too. It, mm-hmm. But not, not to disrupt our relationship, but rather to um, undermine Merkel. It, it it raises a lot of questions that are uncomfortable for defenders of Snowden. You're right. Germany and Brazil were the two countries they focused the most on that we took the biggest hit in our farm relations. Although Germany, we recovered pretty quickly. Brazil, we you know almost never did. W- w- what value of privacy did that serve?
2: Yeah, it bothers me. I'd like to ask Glenn Greenwald these questions someday. I'm serious. Like, I, I, I I don't know yeah, him. I'm, yeah. I, I think he's passionate about what he writes and, and says. I'm curious. I mean, I wonder if he thinks that no country should ever collect intelligence ever. And if that's your principal position, okay. But it seems to only apply to us. I mean, I guess.
3: Well, yeah. That, well, that's... See, that is, again, what is very <laughs> peculiar to me is that China is doing much more far reaching things in terms of censoring the internet and restricting mm-hmm. internet access. Russia is doing much more aggressive things in terms of using cyberspace to intrude upon US elections but also, yeah. you know, people's privacy. <laughs> so, yes. Why are they okay with that? You know, if you're for a value, be for the value. And if you look at this kind of network of WikiLeaks and Snowden and they seem to be for whatever is against America. Right. Um, and I don't say that thinking we're perfect. And, and I'm glad we made some of the reforms we did uh, around metadata collection here and around the world. But and this is another important point. We're better than they are. We're better than the Russians are in upholding values. We're better than Chinese are. And if you delegitimize us, That's what the Russians want and what the Chinese want. It makes us a less credible defender of those values. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, this will get me in trouble. I remember talking to one of the, you know, a wonderful organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, you know, and they do so much to defend journalism around the world. And so I, I, you know, I want that to be very clear. But, you know, they they had the kind of scathing report about us that had stuff in it like the press pool at the White House didn't get access to, like, certain meetings the president had. Tiger uh, Woods golfing with Obama. Yeah, or, like, you know, there just wasn't a pool spray in this meeting or we talk on background or, you know. And, look, these are all legitimate points that we can debate. I'm not saying that, you know, know, they might not have a point that, you know, we seek to put information out in ways Mm -hmm. that, like, reach certain audiences. or But –
2: We're a communication
3: shop. That's what we do. Yeah. But the the problem to me is when that is, like – kind of in some big ball of information together with like countries that are like literally killing and jailing journalists, you yeah. know, yeah. like there has to be a hierarchy. The U S gets more criticism because we're the U S. And I frankly think Obama got more criticism because he was Obama and they knew temperamentally he was like their, he, there, there's never going to be a more progressive president. Mm-hmm. So we're going to hold him to a much higher standard than we'd ever hold anybody else because we want him to overperform, which I, 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 I get, but the, the risk of that is, it, it, you know, it, other countries say, "Well, look, you know, they're they're criticizing them too." Well, you know, the pool access is different than the fact totally. that you just put a blogger in prison.
2: The the, the lack the the hyperbolic statements have sometimes come out that we are the most Obama's the most secretive administration since Nixon, or that we had an unprecedented number of leak investigations, even though the total number you're talking about is like seven or eight, and half of them are holdovers. I think another problem with that is when. You have an administration like the Trump administration that is so hostile to the press that you've lost your ability because you, you cried wolf so many times before. I mean, it's harder to get people to care about these things now.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the when they were going to like cancel the White House briefing, um, right. you know, it was like, well, <laughs> wait a second. Like that's, uh, you know, that's or like there's or a one t- press
2: conference in transition.
3: Yeah. And there, there's like a yes. And there, there's a, another thing about even like everybody makes fun of Sean Spicer for like, you know, the lying. Um, but like the briefings are like 30 minutes They're long. So short. I mean, Josh should go out for like an hour, two hours, right. you know, the uh, AP is take supposed to call when it ends. You know? And um, so everything is seems to be a little bit different now, especially this kind of look what the strange thing to me is like the Bowling Green massacre thing is like a joke on Twitter. But like, I mean, shoot, like <laughs> imagine if, uh, uh, you know, like you and I are people who were subjected to years of investigations yep. because we used information provided to us by the intelligence community that evolved over time. And you know, for that, we had a multi-year Benghazi investigation, all all centered around what a U.S. official said on a television show. Mm-hmm. Well here's a U.S. official like on a television show, like literally saying things about a terrorist attack that never happened. Yeah. You know, I know there's an overused term of normalizing, but like, if it's just kind of not that big a deal, <laughs> that, yeah. that if someone isn't, you know, like, you know, it, I, it just feels like over time, there's going to be this acceptance that, well, facts don't matter. And now, look, I think some people are now taking that on, doing great journalism, but if facts aren't the, the standard to which people held accountable. And look, I didn't mind, like, yeah, sure, hold us accountable on Benghazi that, like we had to put out the facts as we got them. Right. what we always said is, when we got new information, we put them out. Yep. Um, you know, but if we would never just kind of willfully lie, you know? yeah. and despite what every troll on Twitter might say to me, like you know we spent a, a, an enormous amount of time. I'll, I'll give you an example. You know this: We would take a s- strike and take out a, a very important terrorist. And we would wait like weeks to confirm it mm-hmm. until like we had it airtight because we didn't want to put something out that wasn't true or we didn't know to be true yet. I mean, there are any number of examples you could use like that. And, and I just worry if beyond press access issues and things, it's just more like the degradation of facts as the basis for how the U.S. government communicates.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I talked to Jake Sullivan about this a bit, too. I mean, I guess in hindsight, what we screwed up, what we should have done with 2020 hindsight is just have said nothing. But I don't know that that's tenable, right? Because I think back to the bin Laden operation and John Brennan, who had been hunting Osama bin Laden for 50 years of his life, who had lost friends in terrorist attacks. You and I asked him if he would brief what happened in the operation, like the day after it occurred, because he was one of the few people on the planet who knew what happened. And he misstated some facts based on the best... Rundown of what we thought had happened at the time, and we were savaged for that for saying that Bin Laden had used a woman as a human shield or had a gun um, when he was just repeating back what he had been yeah. told.
3: But the bigger thing—I want to make a bigger point on that—which is like the delegitimization of Obama went so far beyond birtherism. We—I won't say we; I'd say he, President Obama—you know—literally together—you know—ordered an operation that. Killed Osama bin Laden. Yeah. And like within two days, we were getting attacked because like John Brennan had like been told an early version of events in the fog of war, you know, about whether or not bin Laden had a gun or not that we then clarified. Right. But the point is, is it like? Yeah. By the way, God forbid we misrepresent Bin Laden's side of the story but, on this. But point, the yeah. point is, it was more important to hurt Obama than to just feel good about this. Yes, you know, like, yeah. hey guys, Republicans, like, we killed Bin Laden, like, that's great. Let's yeah. all feel good about this. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't, and they were like, well, you're boasted about it. Well, it's like, no, we didn't. Well, this is a great moment for the country. We wanted to go out and talk about it. You know, like, yeah. like, and people forget the leak investigations. Some was because like they, like, you know, the Republicans demanded them because they thought we were boasting about it. And it turns out we weren't, right? But. Like I'll, I'll never forget when the Lib- when Gaddafi was killed, um, John McCain and Lindsey Graham put out one of their mm-hmm. you know statements, long statement, and they praised like French and you know they had a narrative right that mm-hmm. we quote unquote lead from behind, which for right. the record neither you or I ever said not actually um, either, <laughs> and so their narrative was Europeans did this and we didn't when in fact we did most of it you know we took out Gaddafi's air defenses and to the very end we were flying missions to support every combat operation. We were doing targeted drone strikes. Like, we were the most important country in that effort. And they didn't thank American pilots. They thanked European pilots. That's crazy. I mean, that's insane. And, and it, it, they they wouldn't let Obama have a shred of credit for anything, even the things that they wanted to have happen. They wanted the Libya intervention to go forward. Right. They certainly wanted to kill bin Laden. And that, to me, like, doesn't get enough attention that, like, there was – The extent to delegitimize Obama, yeah, sure, it was in birtherism and, you know, all the ways in which he was held to a different standard and Mm -hmm. American – he doesn't believe in American exceptionalism, you know, even though he said a million times he does. Like we couldn't even as a country have successes around the world because they needed to deny him that credit.
2: You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. At the very end of the administration, there was a big fight with the Israeli government over a U.N. vote about Israeli settlements. The United States position is that settlements are illegal. They're unhelpful to the peace process. That's been the position of the United States for decades. A resolution came before the U.N. Security Council essentially stating that we did not veto it. We abstained. I'm wondering if you have any reflections on that ridiculous dust up and... Given that you're seeing reports of more settlements being created, of efforts to legalize in Israel all these settlements, if, isn't that vindication of, of that effort?
3: Look, the reason we abstain is, is clear. Like we've been raising concerns about settlements for years. It's been the bipartisan policy in the United States for years to oppose settlements. And they kept building them. <laughs> we tried to have a peace process and each time it failed and the Israeli government never took it seriously they'd get up to a point and then they wouldn't take the real leap for peace. At the end, the reason we abstained is this. It, it's not just a settlements. You know, People who follow this know that there are settlements that currently exist that are inside the borders mm-hmm. that would be drawn in a peace settlement. Right. In other words, they'd be since 1967, there's been some growth in places like Jerusalem that would clearly be a part of Israel in a peace deal. And there would be some swaps of the Palestinians if so they get some other land. It's called, you know, building within the blocks, mm-hmm. uh, but they're building deep inside the West Bank. Um, you know, there are settlements that, like a, the Amona settlement, deep inside the West Bank, uh, where nobody who's ever looked at the issue wouldn't say that's part of a future Palestinian state. And the growth of those settlements is such that. It will make a viable and contiguous Palestinian state impossible because it will cut off all the different Palestinian – it will basically leave a few islands of Palestinians amidst Mm -hmm. uh, a much larger and greater Israel. And furthermore, they're now at a pace of building where the pace of displacement of Palestinians, people being thrown out of their homes, Mm -hmm. that's happening, right? And lastly, as you point out, they had a bill moving its way through the Knesset with the support of the government to legalize these outposts. Uh, again, not in the blocks, but the outposts. And look, there's just, it was, this will kill the two state solution. It will kill it. And for us to stand by and do nothing and to veto a resolution that is fully in line with our policy and, frankly, the view of basically the majority of the rest of the world, um, you know, I think would have been betraying both our, our, what we believe, but also just facts of, mm-hmm. of how these settlements are corrosive. I'll say on the reaction, the Israeli government spent days talking about how they had this secret information that we had, you know, right? What uh, that? which we didn't. You know, we, we, <laughs> we were very clear, like that people were drafting a resolution, like the Egyptians put it forward. Um, we didn't draft it. We didn't put it forward, but we did abstain. We own that too, yeah. by the way. We weren't trying to deny our position. That was fully our position. But what's interesting is they did the same thing that Trump does. It, to me, it was kind of like they were using a page out of Trump's playbook. They tried to make the argument about anything except what the policy was. Right, you know? right. So instead of saying we defend these settlements, these settlements are legitimate. They said we have a we can prove that the Obama administration colluded to do this. Where first of all, we've never seen that ever. So that. after popping off about it for a few days, like you know enough to dis- create enough distraction so that the media attention here, you know, I'd go on television and they'd ask me, "Did you collude?" You know, not like what do you think about these settlements? Yeah. Um, yep. You know, To be fair, Jake Tapper did the best interview with me, and it was a really hard interview. It was about terrorism versus settlements, mm-hmm. but not about this stupid collusion charge, right. which was a sideshow. So when I look back on that, what I see is wrong is that I think there should be more coverage here in the United States about whether we support the settlement movement because the settler movement has taken over Israeli politics and will make a two-state solution impossible. And is that what we believe? Because if you polled people, do you believe in two-state solution? every member of Congress almost would say yes. And yet they're supporting an Israeli government that is making that impossible. Mm -hmm. And the thing that would always bother me is people would say, you know, I'm anti-Israel or I'm anti-Semitic. No, I'm not. I'm totally pro-Israel. That's what informs my belief that Israel will be secure in the long term with a two-state solution. Because I think it'd be very bad for Israel um, if essentially their entire foreign policy more and more has to be about defending the settler. I mean, when
2: I look back, you know, I think back to the major summit we had with the Palestinian Authority, with Abbas, with Mubarak, President Obama, um, with Netanyahu, and, and all the time and effort President Obama put into this, all the things that were never reported that we offered him to try to get to a two-state solution. I just wonder, I wonder if we were wrong to believe that it was possible with him in charge. If maybe his, pol- the charitable view is His politics didn't allow it. The less charitable view is he just wasn't committed to getting a deal.
3: Well, look, it was wrong that he was going to do a peace deal. But we didn't know that. We had to test it. I mean, sure, you could say we should have known. And that's fair. Uh, But he was the prime minister, you know, and Mm -hmm. we had to test it. And we, uh, Because I do believe, look, this I do believe. I, I don't believe that the UN can impose a peace deal. I mean, or declare a Palestinian state. I mean, these people are going to have to live next mm-hmm. to each other. And that's only going to work if they make peace together. And so we do support a negotiated settlement. What's clear to me is that Netanyahu has no interest in it. Zero. Mm-hmm. Zilch. And anybody who believes to the contrary has just not been paying attention. Right. Because yeah. um, it, every every decision he's had to make, he's veered right. Yeah. You know, if he had to rebuild his coalition, it always went to the right. right. Um, Here's Avigdor
2: Lieberman. Yeah. You know,
3: now Amaranth. we have Naftali Bennett. And now, yep. you know, we, and, and so, you know, he showed his cards amply. But look, this is an important thing uh, that people need to understand about foreign policy. Like so much depends on who is a leader of another country to get given yeah. time, right? If uh, If Yitzhak Rabin had been prime minister, right. you know, Barack Obama would probably have like a peace deal, right? Just like – Dmitry Medvedev was still in charge in well, Russia. yeah. Like we got a, a lot done with Medvedev in the first term. Uh, that was important, by the way. We couldn't have gotten the Iran deal without the sanctions we put in mm-hmm. place with Medvedev. So it was worth doing that, by the yeah. way, with him. The, the notion that we shouldn't have done that because yeah. Putin, uh, you know.
2: Don't worry, I geeked out hard with McFall on this. Well, yeah, but I mean the
3: last <laughs> thing I'd say is like and now people are figuring that out in reverse about yeah. Trump, yeah. right? Because countries around the world are not going to want to work with us. I mean it's we talked about the Muslim world. It's true everywhere. Like if, if you, you know, take Australia or France or Mexico, any one of these countries that it's become public that he like insulted their leaders on the phone – forget the personal animus, like the politics in these countries is going to be against cooperating with the United States. That is very powerful. I mean, when Obama came into office, we were able to get European countries that had publics that were profoundly against the war in Afghanistan to ramp up their contributions to the war in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And the only reason we could do that is because Barack Obama was so popular in those countries that, you know, people could see that like this was a priority and this Mm -hmm. was something we had to stick in together. You know, when he's going to have to ask countries to work with us on things, the politics in countries is going to say no. And that's going to have huge ramifications for U.S. interests.
2: Ben, my last question for you, you've been so generous with your time. I asked Jake about this. You know, it's hard, I think, for anyone who's worked in government or the jobs we had to see the suffering in Syria today and to not feel like heartbroken. And I remember being in meetings with you in those early days when it actually felt like there was a chance this thing could go in a good way because these people would be freed from a dictator. And I remember leaving meetings with you feeling so frustrated by the options that were being laid out on the table because, you know, look, America is exceptional can do amazing things. But to me, it often spoke to the limits of our power as well. And I'm wondering, as you look back and you see the situation today, is there anything you think we should have done different that Trump should do tomorrow or that people listening could do in their own lives personally that might actually help?
3: Well, you know, it's the hardest thing like, you know, we'll be thinking about this for the rest of our lives. Um what I'll say though is that I actually had an evolution in a, the opposite direction of a lot of people. In other words, you know me Tommy, like mm-hmm. I started out, I was very interventionist. You know, let's go, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's get take a out, right? I that was wrong. I I I think that was wrong. Um because what the president was looking at was terrible options. Terrible. Cuz you had essentially you know, Assad backed by Russia and Iran, so he was going to be around. You know, people say, well, bomb the runways. Well, then the Russians and the Iranians are building the runways again. What do you do? And there wasn't any way to get involved militarily without us fully finishing the job against Assad. This is a country with a sectarian dynamic that, you know, is a mirror image of Iraq where we couldn't stop killing that killed tens of thousands of people with all the troops that we had there. The notion that we could somehow do that in Syria where there were even more proxies, you know, um, mm-hmm. fighting, we never saw that evidence. The opposition uh, has significant amounts of, you know, good folks who just want a better life. It also has Al Qaeda and ISIL and Hezbollah, and and you could take uh, Assad out tomorrow, and who would be in Damascus? ISIL and Hezbollah and Al Qaeda, right. um, And and they, by the way, they'd still be killing each other. I mean, the, you know, they, they would. The fighting is so sectarian and so entrenched, and is supported by so many proxies right. that, like the even if you decapitated the regime tomorrow, the war would be just as bad. Right. And and so, I just never saw uh, in every meeting any option that could credibly make it better, and that wouldn't prove to be enormously costly to the United States. Um, so what do you do? I mean, you, I mean, and look, you know. I think the beginning is the time that's most interesting to think about, and I don't think arming the rebels—that was always, I think, a false talking point. I mean, we we basically ended up doing what was recommended a few months later, you know, and yeah. there just was never an option that was of a scale that would have like won the war uh, at the beginning. But the what do you do? You you you, you know, one thing you do is you you try to alleviate the humanitarian suffering. Mm-hmm. And that's why we focus so much on refugees. And right. we provided billions of dollars in humanitarian assistance to support the neighboring countries. And you try to, one thing you try to do, and we were beginning to do this, is create pockets that are more secure. So humanitarian corridors. Not, not, not corridors per se, because that becomes a no-fly zone, which okay. means you're dedicating all your resources in one place and they're not looking at other right, places. Right. But, you know, if we basically cleared out the border with Turkey. We, you know, mm-hmm. from Kobani, we moved um, westward and, and evicted ISIL, and now we're moving down to Raqqa. Trump put a pause on that. Um, but if you were to able to kind of evict ISIL from eastern Syria, then you at least have some, a place mm-hmm. that is not under the control of the regime, that is under the control of the opposition, who is not ISIL, right. and that at least, you know, again, it's it's not about a say it's just about an area. Where there's local ground forces who we've trained and have relationships with, and, and 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 they can start to rebuild Raqqa. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, um, that's so. If I was Trump, um, that I would focus on the part of the country where we are making a difference and get them out of Raqqa. That t- takes away their so-called capital, but it also you know begins to leave you with this part of eastern Syria that admittedly is less populated and um, is not the the heart of the country, but mm-hmm. is at least a place where you know, some degree of life can resume. Right.
2: Ben, I miss sharing an office with you, buddy. Thank you so much for your time. This is fascinating. Thank you for eight years of giving your life over to an administration, to a president, to a country. It's a big deal and I'm very grateful to you.
3: Now I get to be a friend of the pod. Yeah, friend of the pod, man, with your t shirt. (laughs) Thanks.